Hey, good morning, church. Good to see you on this Lord's Day. I join with Pastor Mike and just celebrating what God did among us last week, last Sunday at our picnic. The community was fantastic. Enjoyed every part of that as I know you did as well. And here we are today, Sunday, August 8th of 2021, and God is on his throne today, and all of God's people said, amen. And if you feel like summer is slipping away, just be encouraged. Today is just the middle point. Today is the precise middle of summer. We got a whole lot of summer left, amen? We also have some exciting days to come forward. I don't know if you've noticed anything happening in the commons. Um We're excited about the project there. We're excited about so many things related to our ministry upcoming, I mean, right now, and what's going to unfold, especially as we do move into the fall. But we're so grateful for the progress being made out there. So much of that, I want you to know, is being done in-house. Now, a week from tomorrow, some floor-covering process will begin, and so you'll notice things picking up as we move along, and, and that will largely be done by somebody else. But our facility staff is fantastic, and under the direction of... Under not only just the direction of, of Bruce Baker, um, but also so much of his own sweat and, and blood, uh, we're so grateful for all that's, that's happening there. And uh, you'll be excited about what's coming. Hey, we are in this series in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, looking at Jesus' words to specific churches and... It's been an intense study. It doesn't get any less easy today. So a deep dive into Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 today as we look at the church of Sardis. I wish I could tell you I've got some amazing, hilarious stories for you today. Uh, But the church of Sardis, well, Jesus has a message for them that all of us need to hear. On the one hand, I was stirred so much this morning hearing you engage in worship, your response as we sing, your response even after we sing. And so much of that and so much more indicates life within Loudonville Community Church. But we're going to talk about a church today that was missing life. So with, again, your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, We're going to look at the church of Sardis this morning. We're on the backside of our series that we've been calling When Jesus Comes to Church. Some 60 years after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, he dictated to the Apostle John seven different letters intended for seven actual churches. And in these letters, in this cluster of letters, Jesus is speaking prophetically. And by that I mean he is not forecasting the future as much as as he is revealing things to each church that could only be known by divine insight. We may think we know how a church or a person is getting along, especially how they're getting along spiritually. We talk about churches and churches' reputation 
So grateful to hear Bob Gacosta talk this morning about the reputation of Galden being a mission-minded church. Churches have reputations, and we may think we know what that reputation is, but there is only one who sees what no one else can see, who knows what no one else knows. Jesus knows us completely because he is among us. Jesus is in church today. And today we're looking at these letters really to see how they impact us. And, well, fifth church along the way is the church of Sardis. We've been to to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira, and today we come to Sardis. Jesus says he stands among the lampstand of his churches. So the fifth church on his mailing list is this church of Sardis. You'll find Jesus' entire letter to this church, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. It's interesting for what it doesn't say. So before I read it, you'll notice that Jesus will not criticize the church of Sardis for its lack of love as he did for the Ephesian church. He Apparently, there was no partial acceptance of false teaching in Sardis as there was in the church of Pergamum, nor did Jesus have to confront this church like he did those in Thyatira for their sexual sin. Uh, The reputation of the church of Sardis was sterling. It was known to be an extraordinary fellowship, and yet when Jesus' letter was read to the entire assembly, it hit them like an earthquake. Unexpected and jolting. Let me read it. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Welcome to the church of Sardis. Here was a church that was both dead and dying. And both things can be true at the same time. Fortunately, there was, as Jesus mentioned, a faithful minority. There was a faithful remnant. But most of the church was was either absent a pulse or clinging to life support. John Stodd, the eminent British pastor, said Sardis was an ecclesiastical corpse. John Stott, the prolific or excuse me, Eugene Peterson, the prolific American pastor and author of the message, called the church of Sardis a concentration camp, a death camp. The church of Sardis was like so many churches that have the aura of renown 
but are void of life. In fact, listen to John Stott's entire description of this church in in one of his works. He states, the church of Sardis was positively humming with activity. There was no shortage in the church of money or talent or manpower. There was every indication of life and vigor, but outward appearances are notoriously deceptive. And this socially distinguished congregation was a spiritual graveyard. It seemed to be alive, but it was actually dead. It had a name for virility, but it had no right to its name. Its works were beautiful grave clothes, which were but a thin disguise for this ecclesiastical corpse. The eyes of Christ saw beyond the clothes to the skeleton. It was as dead as mutton. That's a good British term. It even stank, he said. The church of Sardis was like a scented cadaver. Every church has a reputation. Its reputation may be deserved or manufactured. It may be real or it may not be nothing but hype. But the church of Sardis had a reputation that didn't match reality. It was known for being vibrant and full of energy, but it was listless and stiff. Clearly, image isn't everything. Now, every church is nothing more than it's the sum of its parts. And each of us contribute to the whole. And you, if you call Loudonville Community Church your, your home, you are an inseparable slice of who we are. And so we need to be honest this morning. Because what is true of the church of Sardis may also be true about any of us individually. Maybe you have the reputation of being someone who is spiritually alive, but you're running on fumes. If there was something spiritual about you that was, that was burning bright, it flamed out maybe a long time ago. So maybe you have a reputation for being alive, but like this church, you're, you're either dead or dying. The legendary basketball coach of UCLA, John Wooden, the wizard of Westwood, used to say, be more concerned with your character than with your reputation because your character is what you really are. Your reputation is merely what others think you are. So what if the Lord performed a spiritual audit on you, would he be able to find life? Would he be able to find a pulse? Maybe when you hear Jesus talk about the church of Sardis, you're silently muttering, that's me too. Something flamed out in me long ago. So Jesus' letter has a lot to say, I think, to all of us if our reputation doesn't necessarily match reality. So again, the church of Sardis had a reputation for being a great church, but its image wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. And, and it was so much like the city of Sardis itself. And we've seen throughout this series, haven't we, that oftentimes the story of a church is replicated in the story of its city. And in all seven letters, Jesus points out that it's important for a church to know where it's situated, to know where it is located, because so often we may resemble it. 
Testament. And so, as we have done in previous messages, let's take a duck tour of the city of Sardis for a few moments. As with all seven churches, it was located in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Herodotus, the Greek historian who has been tagged the father of, of history, asserted that the city of Tardis of Sardis was actually founded by the sons of Hercules. It was the capital of the ancient Lydian kingdom. That's for real. The other thing wasn't. And it reached its pinnacle of fame under King Croesus about 600 years before the birth of Christ. And at its zenith, Sardis was a spectacular place. It was a wealthy city. You know about Midas, the king with a golden touch. Well, legend has it that for being kind to one of his friends, the Greek god Dionysius rewarded Midas with any wish he desired. And Midas asked that for everything he touched, for it to turn to gold. And so when he touched his robe, it turned to gold. When he sat on his throne, it turned to gold. When he ate a plate of fried chicken, it turned to gold. That was the best joke I've got today. He he realized his ultimate folly when he touched his daughter. And she became gold. And so King Midas asked Dionysius to release him from his wish. And he was told to go and wash his hands in the river Pactolus. And when he did, he lost his golden touch. But all the rocks in the river turned to gold and then floated downstream all the way to the city of Sardis. That legend became popular in order to explain the opulence of this city. In fact, Sardis was the first city in the world where coins were actually minted. I mean, if you were to take a quarter, as I look at mine that was in my pocket, and just to the right of of George there, underneath the inscription, In God We Trust, you'll find a letter. And on this one, I find the little letter P, which tells me where this quarter was minted. And the P there stands for Philadelphia. Well, it's interesting that the very first coins in all of human history were were minted in the city of Sardis. Sardis was a big deal. It had a gymnasium that stretched over a campus of five and a half acres. The gym was also the educational center for the city, and, and so much of its education, its classes were conducted underneath the walkways, the coverings of this gymnasium. About a mile and a half away from the gymnasium itself was the Temple of Artemis. We've encountered that temple in, in other cities in Asia Minor as well. It was an imposing structure, but never completed. The most prominent feature of the city itself geographically, was the Acropolis. And the Acropolis, or the citadel of Sardis, had the reputation because of its, its location, its, its feature of being invincible. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the church of Sardis, like its city, seemed impressive. This church may have been larger than the other six churches. It may have been a busy church. It may have been buzzing with with oomph and, and energy. It was the place to go because the people there were on the go. But Jesus, 
with his x-ray vision, examined the church and rendered a lethal diagnosis. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Imagine visiting your doctor for your annual physical and after taking your blood pressure and listening to your lungs and maybe performing an EKG, your doctor says it's, it's inexplicable. I mean, you appear to be in excellent health, but your heart isn't pumping any blood. It's as hard as rock. That was the church of Sardis. And interestingly, again, the church of Sardis wasn't disturbed by heresy. It wasn't rocked by scandal. Its offerings were generous. It was an active fellowship. But when the ultimate church consultant wrote up his final report, it was as brief as it was brutal. You're as dead as one of your ancient pillars. Well, in order to find out what was wrong with the church of Sardis... If we can change the metaphor from a doctor to a detective, we need to put on the hat of of a detective this morning. And so maybe you want to grab your Sherlock Holmes deer skill hat and open your eyes and look at this text again and see with me if you can spot some of the clues that would be the reason behind why Jesus gave this church such a fatal diagnosis. The first sign upon closer examination is found in those opening words in Jesus' own self-designation to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Those seven stars, by the way, probably refer to the angel, I believe the guardian angel that stands over every church. But it's that phrase right before that, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. It's a very unusual phrase. It's found just a few times in the Bible, but not in exactly this kind of correspondence. But in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, we're told about the seven spirits who are before the throne of God. And of course, you know that the number seven in Scripture is the number for completion or perfection. And so I think this is simply a perfection a poetic way of of referring to the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting that the word spirit in both Hebrew and Greek means wind or breath. So there is something active. There is something invigorating. There is something life-giving about the Holy Spirit. And the church in Sardis was dead because it had quenched the Holy Spirit. It was absent of his invigorating, life-giving power and presence. A church or a life that has quenched the Holy Spirit is a lifeless machine. It may run well. It may look good from a distance, but it's dead. The Holy Spirit, he imparts life. And so a church is one, a dead church, is one that has grieved the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, he backs off. He lifts, he pulls away his hand of blessing upon that church 
or even that life. The second sign requiring a little closer inspection, I think, is found at the end of verse 5. The one who conquers, Jesus says there, will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. I read that, and it sounds a lot like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, where he said, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. If you know me and you confess me before men, Jesus says, then I will declare that I know you and, and confess you before my Father. But apparently in the church of Sardis, uh, the people there played it safe. They were avoiding confessing Jesus before other people. And maybe this was why there's no hint of any kind of persecution going on in this church like there was in the church of Smyrna. Because they were silent about their faith in public and therefore escaped trouble. They weren't compromising with false teaching. They weren't guilty of gross hypocrisy. But this church was dead because when it came to talking about Jesus... Their lips were sealed tight. I spent some time with some families in our church yesterday, and there was just this really beautiful moment that I found out afterwards when one of the, one of the little girls in one of the families was hanging around with a friend who was living next door. And that friend had come over at some point and later asked her, who are all those people over there? And she said, well, that's my pastor." Well, who in the world is that? What's he do? And this girl said, well, he is a leader and, and a teacher in my church. And he shows us what it means to follow Jesus. She'd been waiting for an opportunity for a long time to be able to, to share with her little Jewish friend something about Jesus. What I loved about that, that beautiful little picture is that her lips were open. Her mouth was confessing. She wasn't afraid to talk about Jesus, but apparently here was, here was a church that was. They possessed the treasure of the gospel, but they kept it concealed behind closed mouths. Again, what's interesting about this church is that it was free of persecution. The Romans left this church alone because they did not perceive it to be a threat. It was too bland to be bothered by. And so Sardis may be the, the prime example of a church that goes nominal, plays it safe, and becomes harmless. Its motto must have been silence is golden. You know, sometimes we may hide. Sometimes we... We keep our faith in a closet, and then we have to ask ourselves if, if the faith we have is really a faith worth having. Because if we're not willing to tell our next-door neighbor or the person we work with about our faith in Jesus, then there's no reason in why we don't become, why we are nothing but nominal and harmless, because we play it safe. The third sign requiring, I think, closer inspection here is the last phrase of verse 3. 
that comes wrapped up in a warning, if you will. Jesus says to this church, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Remember earlier, we noted that one of the impressive geographical features of this church or of this city was its Acropolis, its citadel. When the city was threatened by invading forces in its history, the people would simply fly to the top of this, this Acropolis. They would climb to the top of this citadel, and they were safe. And so Sardis had the reputation as a city of, of being invincible. In fact, the words to capture the Acropolis of Sardis was considered proverbial for doing that which is impossible. And yet two times in the city's past, the city of Sardis was taken by surprise and captured by outside forces. When the Persians set siege to the city, one of its soldiers, one of the Sardis soldiers, accidentally lost control of his helmet and it fell off over the edge of the cliff. A Persian soldier retrieved it put it on, approached the gates of the city. They saw the helmet. They identified him as as one of their own, and he walked in and then opened the rest of the gates of the city to his own army. 300 years later, invading soldiers noticed a part of the wall where vultures were nesting, and they reasoned rightly that vultures nest where soldiers don't stand guard. And so they accessed that part of the wall, and like the past, they they were able to climb in, open the city gates unhindered, and invade. So two times, the, the city of Sardis was guarded, or excuse me, invaded, because they left the city wide open. What about you? What if Jesus inspected your life and he found it lacking a spiritual pulse? What would be the reason? When you ended up in trouble, if the flame in you burned out long ago, why? What's happened? Maybe it's busyness. Maybe your motto is, if I just keep going, I won't have to think about anything real. If I just keep going, then I don't need to think about myself. Or maybe it's disappointment. You were once filled with such hopes and dreams, but maybe life became just too much. Maybe there was a loss of job, maybe a painful divorce. Maybe your kids aren't doing well, and some things have just become an extreme disappointment for you. Maybe you've said no to God one too many times. He speaks. He lays before you what he wants you to do, and and you ignore his voice. And each time you ignore his voice, something inside you dies. Or maybe you've been quiet about Jesus. He's wanted you to tell your friend or your coworker about him, but you thought it was better to be silent than to speak. Or maybe you've been living with some bitterness of an unforgiving spirit. You've been burned. Maybe you've been hurt badly by someone, and you refuse to let it go, and the bitterness just has swallowed you up. Maybe it's time to forgive your offender. Or maybe it's envy. Why her, not me? 
Why did God, God bless them and not us? Maybe you feel that God has, has ripped you off in some way that he hasn't been an entirely fair to you. Or maybe you've simply been living off the reputation that you are alive, but you know that there's nothing spiritually vital that's been happening in you for a very long time. Or maybe, maybe you just thought that you could never be bought, that you would never sell out that you would never turn away and you didn't realize that you were vulnerable. You've become complacent, sleepwalking through life. It's notable to me that to the point of tragedy, Jesus could find nothing remotely appealing about the majority of people in this church. My mama used to say, if you can't say something good, don't say anything at all. Jesus didn't follow my mother's advice. So how do you get back on track? Jesus told the church of Sardis to do five things. If you are not today where you once were, if something that once burned brightly has flamed out. If you were much stronger in your faith at one time than you are today, if you used to love to tell people about Jesus, but today you're more silent because to be a Christian in our culture today is not a popular thing. And so in order to escape insult, you're silent. How do you get back on track? Jesus says, first of all, wake up. Wake up. That's a pretty good word for a church that's dead because he is the one who gives new life. The dead hear his voice and, and they wake up. That's his first call to this church. It's a call to alertness. It's a call to vigilance. Jesus is saying to the believers, to those who were professing his name in Sardis, stop being careless. Somebody once said that there are two buttons I refuse to push, the panic button and the snooze button. If you tend to press the spiritual snooze button too many times, Jesus says, get up, get out of bed, and do the works that aren't completed. Set a guard over your heart, Jesus says. For he goes on to say, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And some think that that's a reference to the, to the second coming of Christ, but more likely it's, it's simply a reference to Jesus' impending coming to this church. When he shows up, he will carry out discipline against his own fellowship. And remember, everyone he loves, he disciplines. He will come to this church because he loves this church. Not only wake up, he says, but two, strengthen whatever remains and is about to die. The closest thing to a compliment that you'll find in this letter is that there was at least a pocket of life. Most of the people there were in ICU, but there was a faithful remnant, but most were dead and dying. And so Jesus is saying to them, take immediate action because if you don't, it just won't get any better. So what in your life right now, and while we speak to the church as a whole, we also speak to you as individually, what in your life right now is on life support? What is barely hanging on? What's either dead or dying? 
And what about the kind of life the God of life has created you to live? Sometimes we settle, as Lewis would say, for mud pies in the backyard, forgetting that he has offered to us a weekend at the sea. In other words, the treasures that we have in God through the gospel are so rich and so amazing and so mind-blowing, but we settle for so much less. Is there an ember in your life that needs to be fanned back into the flame? And it can still be so. It can still happen, but action needs to be taken. Here's what I know. It won't get better on its own. So what steps should you begin to take today to get your life back on spiritual track? This has been a testing time for us. This past 16 months, and for many of us, we're just now re-engaging, even in gathering to church, and that may be a part of it. But what about in your own life when you when you practice some spiritual disciplines that are so vital to the life that we can experience, not those disciplines that merely become a duty for us. I'm, I'm doing my devotional duty, right? But rather to read the word and to talk to God and to listen to him as a part of our own relational intimacy with him. Where are you stacking up? Again, it won't get better on its own. What about again? having the guts and the boldness and the courage to talk about Jesus, to introduce him to your friend and not to be afraid. Number three, remember then what you have received and heard, Jesus said. That's very interesting. If I was speaking to a dead church, I don't know if I would say what Jesus said here, but this is what he says, and therefore he knows better than any of us. Spiritual vitality is not restored by learning something new, but by remembering something old. And Jesus just says, remember what you received and heard. Go back. Go back and remember what you heard and have now forgotten. What did they hear? They heard about grace. They heard about the fact that the God of the universe loved them so much that he gave his, his only begotten son for them and that Jesus Christ gave his life at the cross, paid the price for our sins by breathing himself out on that hill outside of the city of Jerusalem. He gave his all for you and for me, and he did it completely by his mercy, his grace, and his amazing love. Rules can't rescue you. Following the regulations can't do it, but Jesus can. Remember the grace of Jesus Christ, that in the greatest act of self-generosity, God gave to us his very best. Remember that. And if that doesn't cause you to live for him with greater joy and greater enthusiasm, then I don't know what will. So recall the blessings of divine grace. And again, be strengthened by them. So often we forget who we are. And we forget what we have received. Remember who you are. Remember children. Remember youth. Remember young adults. Remember 20-somethings. Remember seniors. Remember those of us in midlife. Remember what he has done. And number four, hold fast. We don't make progress. We don't move forward 
by grabbing onto something new. We're always clamoring for something new, but we remember what we have heard, and then based on what we have heard, we keep it. We hold fast. The word means simply to obey. We hang on to God's commands. We apply his truth to life. So when we hear God's word and it's proclaimed, then then he is telling us in the midst of that what we need to do. Pay attention to the Holy Spirit, this life-giving one who breathes new life into you. And as he reveals truth to you, you put it into practice. There are no brownie points for hearing truth but not doing it. So when God makes something so very clear, do it. Hold firmly to it. Hold fast. Practice these things. And then repent. That's number five. And that's what he says to every church that needs to be restored or every individual that needs to get right with God. Repent. Start obeying and stop sinning. You see, the church of Sardis was probably guilty of insanity, of doing the same things and expecting different results. And repentance means that you stop doing the same things. You do a turnaround, and you start doing what needs to be done. It, it's, it's about a life change, and you cannot change if everything stays the same. So may this day, may today, be a day of change for you. My time is gone, so let me be, let me be brief as we look to the end. If that's where you are, if the spiritual flame has gone out, that the Holy Spirit causes it to burn brightly again, and if you do, here are some promises for you. The reward to those who persevere. First, you see it in verse 4, they will walk with Jesus in white. That is simply a promise of victory. That's a a promise of, of living and dwelling and enjoying and relishing the messianic kingdom, this kingdom of Jesus that he is going to allow us to enter into and and it will be the the most amazing face to face intimacy and fellowship with him that any of us could dream of. Secondly, the conqueror will be clothed in white garments. We are there not because of anything that we have done, but because of the righteousness of Christ. And his righteousness upon us that we're clothed with is like white garments. Third, the conqueror will not have his or her name erased from the book of life. We could spend all day right there, couldn't we? But I think Jesus is simply saying that faithfulness and perseverance are the evidence of fruit, the fruit of having one's name in the book of life. The issue is not whether you believed, past tense, but whether or not you're believing right now. The the issue is not whether or not you once went to church often, but whether or not you're persevering in your faith in Jesus right now, today. And those things are marking your life. Fourth, the overcomer will have his or her name confessed before the Father and the angels. So Jesus says, you talk to other people about me, I'll talk to you talk about you to my Father in heaven and the angels. It's a great phrase. Here's the reward to those whose spiritual vitality may have once waned, but then it gets lit up again. 
This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is his invigorating power, breathing new life into us. You know, the, the church of Sardis, contrary to what Jesus says here and what we might think, wasn't the worst church. <laughs> that, that badge of dishonor belongs to Laodicea. Pastor Mike gets that one in a few weeks. But this church was in ICU. It was in trouble. And Jesus is calling them back to the Holy Spirit, to his, again, life-giving power for him to breathe new life into what is dead. So I'm I'm going to take you back a few years. If you remember Keith Green and his ministry in music, Here's a song that, that I sing in private, often, but here are the words. Rushing wind blow through this temple, blowing out the dust within. Come and breathe your breath upon me. I have been born again. Holy Spirit, I surrender. Take me where you want to go. Plant me by your living water. Plant me deep so I can grow. Jesus, you're the one who sets my spirit free. Use me, Lord. Glorify your holy name through me. Separate me from this world. Some of you, I think, are already beginning to sing this in your head. I know, I can tell. You old timers, you really old people. Yeah. Separate me from this world, Lord. Sanctify my life in you. Daily change me to your image. Help me bear good fruit. Every day you're drawing closer. Trials come to test my faith. But when all is said and done, Lord, you know it's been worth the way. Jesus, you're the one who set my spirit free. Use me, Lord. Glorify your holy name through me. But here again is the repetition of the first lines. Rushing wind blow through this temple, blowing out the dust within, come and breathe your breath upon me, for I've been born again. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, come. Come and blow. Let your stirring wind, your cleansing, purifying, life-giving, sanctifying wind blow through us today. Through this church, through this place, through every life, blow through every family, every marriage, Blow through every single person whose flame once burned bright but has grown dim. Blow through, Father, every one of us who has become too timid to talk of Christ. And, Father, open our lips and, oh, with a thousand tongues, let us speak the name of Christ. Father, where we have been fearful to stand for truth and righteousness, blow through. And give courage and bravery and boldness to this generation of believers. May 
the wind of your spirit. If need be, require gale force, hurricane-like winds to blow out everything that doesn't belong and with it in its wake bring all that is good and righteous and need it. Blow with invigorating energy and strength, we pray. And we all say, let it begin in me. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together.